Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. Explain things in a credible way so that the public understands why they're being asked to do things. You can't force people, especially Americans, to do things that they refuse to do. That's Henry Waxman. He served 40 years as a U.S. representative from California and was the primary sponsor of 48 bills that were eventually enacted. Although the congressman retired in 2015, he still has a keen sense of what government can accomplish even in the most challenging times. He spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman, Mike Milken. Henry, thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to do this interview and podcast with you, Mike. I want to tell you how much I've admired you and all the work you've been doing, especially in the health area. And if we get out of this whole COVID-19, I think a lot of it may be due to your work because I know you're spending an enormous amount of time on this issue. Well, thank you, Henry. 40 years in the House of Representatives, chairing the House Health and Environmental Subcommittees, chairing Energy and Commerce, and so many things that you focused on, clean air, infant formulas, orphan drugs, air quality, food quality, issues related to smoking, etc. And when I think about this, public health and the environment in many ways has dominated your life and you have been a champion for so many decades. What was it that led you to this focus that I would see on the importance of public health, but being one of its major advocates and the environment very early in your career? When I was first elected to public office, I thought that I ought to concentrate on some policy area, not that I would exclude other areas, but I felt that if I became an expert, that I could have a greater chance to get things accomplished. So I focused on health issues. There seemed to be very little controversy over the fact that government had to be involved in these areas, whether it was biomedical research or healthcare services or public health. The American people were looking to government to play a very big role. I got the chance to become chairman of the Health and Environment Subcommittee after just two terms in the House. And in that position, I was able to hold hearings, talk to experts, talk to my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, and try to figure out what we could do in the areas of orphan drugs, which are drugs for people with rare diseases, or the Medicaid program, or the Medicare program, which were healthcare services, or the National Institutes of Health. So we worked on these issues, and I'm very proud of our accomplishments. Every piece of legislation that I authored into law, except one, had bipartisan support because I actively sought cooperation with my Republican colleagues. I felt these were not partisan issues, although everything now is partisan, which unfortunately. But I thought if we talked them out and looked at the different options, we could get better legislation by working together. Many people across the aisle would have talked about you being a fierce competitor. I viewed it differently. I viewed you were a fierce fighter for people's rights, children's rights, senior citizens' rights. And to me, it was always easy to understand where you stood on an issue. I came to you in the early 90s 
and then I felt we needed to accelerate medical research. You were instrumental in our efforts between 93 and eventually 98 when we put on that march and brought a half a million people to Washington and around the country to really culminate yours and many others' efforts, which resulted in the tripling of the National Cancer Institute's budget and doubling of the NIH. And since then, we've had over $400 billion in incremental. It was an important period of time. And I remember in working with you then in the early 90s that we got considerable bipartisan support. I think we had 160 people in the House and 60 senators that I personally visited with during that period of time on the importance of both public health and medical research. NIH has always been supported by Democrats, Republicans, independents. The gem of our federal government's activities in terms of health certainly did not agree with Newt Gingrich so much of the time. I have to credit him with doubling the amount of money that went to the NIH budget, for which I think he was absolutely right and championed a good cause. We've always had some strong support for NIH. During this period of time, we found that many of the pharmaceutical companies were developing drugs that were based on NIH research. They would take the the basic research and translate it into pharmaceutical products. That meant that we could reach people and give them cures when the cures involved pharmaceuticals. And Senator Hatch and I authored a bill called the Hatch-Waxman Act, which said that we wanted to give an incentive for the private pharmaceutical industry to produce more drugs that will be beneficial to people. So we wanted to give them those incentives not just to develop new drugs, but drugs for people with rare diseases. And in the 1980s, we adopted two bills, the Orphan Drug Act. It's called Orphan Drugs because people, where there was a small patient population, suffered from a disease that was rare. And often the drug companies didn't work on those drugs. They worked on drugs that had a higher market. So we gave greater incentives for them to develop drugs for people with rare diseases, and it's been a great success. And the Hatch-Waxman Act said, we'll give the drug companies more time on their patent when they're at the FDA and doing all the testing to show the drugs safe and effective. But at the same time, as soon as the patent ran out, we wanted to have competitor drugs, generic drugs, and let them go on the market right away. Prior to that law, for a generic drug to go on the market, it had to go through all the tests that the pioneer drug had to go through to show the safety and effectiveness, and the generic was just the same drug. So we had developed in that law an abbreviated new drug application so that generics could get approved just by showing that it was the same drug as the one that had already been approved and was on the market. That has saved trillions of dollars for the payment of drugs for our government, for insurance companies, for individuals. And even now I'm working on ideas for the Congress to try to figure out how to make this balance system go back to that balance, which is out of place right now, because a lot of the drug companies 
spend a lot of money trying to figure out how to hold on to their monopoly. They need the monopoly. That's what a patent gives the manufacturer. But at some point, we want competition because there's consumer benefits from market forces that produce lower prices. Henry, as you know full well, and as we have been working with more than 100 pharmaceutical, biotech companies, bioscience companies, I think a recent example of that cooperation was that Gilead's drug that was recently approved, Gilead gave some of the generic producers the rights to make this drug to increase supply that were located particularly in Asia with no royalties. So giving generic manufacturers the right to make this drug during this crisis is just an example of what you're seeing. One of the podcasts I did with Alex Gorsky, the CEO of J&J, they have committed to provide the entire world with their vaccine in conjunction with BARDA free. Billions of doses if it works. This was a very competitive industry among themselves. And as you pointed out, many of them were aggressive and trying to slow down the ability of generic manufacturers. In this case, as you can see, they have done the reverse. So over the decades, we've tried to convince people of the importance of public health. I've spoken to many people. One of the things that I've seen is their feeling that pandemics occurred in Asia. They occurred in Africa but they didn't really occur in the United States. And when you see the reaction in Asia, it was so much quicker. Hong Kong, probably quicker than anyone as they remembered SARS. And early in January, people on the street were wearing masks in Hong Kong before the government even suggested that they should. It seems in many ways that in spite of the efforts, it seems that people really weren't focused on what public health and what these schools of public health were capable of doing. How do you believe this will change? If you were still in the leadership role in Congress, how would you change the focus going forward? This is not a pandemic that has only affected Asia, and they were ahead of us in doing a very well-known strategy of trying to see who was infected, tracing their contacts in order to stop the spread of the epidemic. I was chairman of the health subcommittee when the HIV-AIDS epidemic broke out in the early 80s. We didn't call it AIDS. We didn't call it HIV. We didn't know what it was. It was a very unusual disease that was spreading geometrically among gay men. And it took a while for us to understand what was happening. There was a scary time. There were a lot of emotional reactions, not always rational. People didn't understand what was going on. And didn't, especially gay men, want to take tests that would show whether they're infected because they would lose their jobs, they would lose their health coverage, and so much of our health coverage has been tied to jobs. There was no vaccine, there was no protection from discrimination. A lot of those things have changed now, but at that time, 
we started holding hearings. We listened to the experts. And we needed to tackle the problem in a rational and traditional way that these kinds of diseases have been pursued through contact tracing and seeing who was infected. We should learn a lot and we need to change our public health system. We need to make sure that everybody's covered. We need to do contact tracing. That's not something unique to Asia. We've been doing it here in the United States. And we tackled other pandemics in the United States much more successfully. And we've got to be able to have a public health system that will allow us to do that again. You were in leadership and focused on these issues during the height of the concern of HIV-AIDS. There was a young woman that our foundations supported, Elizabeth Glazer, as you remember, who formed the Pediatric AIDS Foundation. When Magic Johnson went on television to say he was retiring from the Lakers because he was diagnosed with HIV, most of the people in America thought he was going to die. But our healthcare medical research system, which is yet to produce a vaccine with antivirals and other treatments, Magic Johnson is alive and well and been active in many of our healthcare initiatives, including the celebration of science that you participated in to reaffirm the country's commitment to bioscience. And probably one of the greatest events I attended at the NIH was a discussion when we went from a woman having a 98% probability of passing HIV AIDS onto her child in childbirth to a 95 to 98% probability of not passing it on. And President Bush was instrumental in his support of so many other healthcare efforts in Africa. I think that surprised many people at that time. How do we take this crisis, this COVID-19 crisis, and say that going forward, we are not going to be surprised again by a pandemic? And as you've pointed out, our schools of public health who have dealt with pandemics in other parts of the world previously know what to do. It's testing. It's contact tracing, it's separation, it's following people that interact, isolating them. So there is a plan. How would you lead our effort here, Henry, to emphasize the importance here of going forward, of being prepared in public health? The first thing we need to do is to explain things in a credible way so that the public understands what is being done, why they're being asked to do things. Sometimes you can pass a law and force them to do things. But on the other hand, you can't force people, especially Americans, to do things that they refuse to do. One problem we had even before the COVID-19 problem was that even though we have vaccines that can prevent terrible diseases that used to kill people, especially children, even though we can prevent those diseases, There has been an increase in people thinking that they shouldn't have to bother to vaccinate their kids. Now, it's the law that before your kids can go to school, they have to be vaccinated for childhood diseases. Because if people don't get vaccinated, we end up seeing diseases that should be gone 
come back. Measles is a good example. We've had measles outbreaks because so many kids never got immunized, even though it was required that they get immunized. And there were enough live viruses around that it started spreading, especially to people who couldn't get immunized themselves. We've got to get the public to cooperate But the essential thing of getting the public to cooperate is to be credible, to explain the situation, to be coercive in some ways. We have to insist that people get their children immunized. And if we have a vaccine, hopefully soon, to stop COVID-19, I think everybody will want to take it. But there will be some people who won't want to, and we'll have to deal with that. The only way that public health works is to have people accept because what's being explained has credibility. We're talking about HIV AIDS. In the beginning, there's still no vaccine and there was no treatment. It was affecting gay men primarily, and they certainly didn't want to be tested without protections for their confidentiality and to avoid discrimination. So we had to give them a sense of confidence to come in and get tested. And we've done that under a number of pieces of legislation. And today, the remarkable thing about AIDS is that biomedical research has developed pharmaceuticals that can contain the disease and stop its spread, even without a vaccine. So we made a lot of progress there, thanks to the research that's been done, the work of the pharmaceutical industry, the work of public health forces. And we've got to look to that as a model, although it's a little different, But people want to know what they're doing is benefiting them and their family and the community in which they live. So, Henry, I remember it's probably more vivid to me than to you. I was in your office many, many years ago, and you were going to hold a hearing. And I asked you, why are you holding a hearing on this subject? And you commented to me that, Well, you've been talking to them and trying to point them in the right direction, but sometimes holding a hearing lets them see the light much clearer. Do you feel, as you did when you told me there that day, that putting on hearing sometimes or many times gets people pointed in the right direction better than just talking to them on the telephone? Do you think that over all those hearings, over all those years and one, that might be memorable in showing them the light? I think Congress has two responsibilities. We think about legislation, but oversight and investigations is probably even more important because we can see whether the laws are working as they were intended. And sometimes just giving a focus on a problem can help resolve it without legislation. And it can have a dramatic impact. It could raise a priority for people in government to address the problem or people in the private sector to correct the the problems. Those hearings are very important. Probably the most important hearing that I held that changed things dramatically was the hearing with the tobacco executives. They came in voluntarily. We didn't subpoena them to testify. And they took an oath to tell the truth. And they proceeded to lie. They said cigarette smoking does not harm health that nicotine was not addictive, that they did not manipulate the nicotine levels to keep people smoking. They certainly wouldn't target children when they're advertising. And all of those things turned out to be the opposite of what they told us. And that hearing didn't lead to legislation, 
for at least 15 years later. The hearing was in 1994. The tobacco control legislation wasn't adopted. Probably wrong on my math, but you are totally correct, Henry. It was 2009. And so. But just the hearing itself made a huge difference because people saw the tobacco industry in a different light. They saw men dressed in suits who were executives lie, and they realized that not only their nicotine being manipulated to keep them smoking, but their view of tobacco was being manipulated. A lot of people stopped smoking and stopped listening to those ads. We've seen a steady drop in tobacco smoking since 1994, and a law that passed in 2009 has helped. Most of the work that was done to reduce smoking rates was done before that law was even passed as a result of that hearing. Well, that hearing changed the course of history, Henry, and I remember it well. In 1939, they put out a report that smoking could be harmful to your health. And many, many years later, in 1986, I remember reading an analysis that Marlboro was the most valuable brand in the world. And in 1989, at one point, the most valuable company in the world was Philip Morris, today Altria. So when you think about the research from 1939, and still this brand was so valuable in 86, and at one point the company was the most valuable company in our country, those hearings did change the course of history, and I appreciate you bringing them up today. And even today, there are 300 million smokers in China. And the number of people that die from different diseases outside the United States in many countries, smoking-related diseases, if not the number one, is one of the top two or three. And when we analyze at the Milken Institute, what is the cost to society of different things that are occurring? Smoking is still, in the world, one of the top three causes of negative side effects. So, Henry, I want to thank you for a generation or two or three as a leader in public health, as a leader in the environment. Thank you for joining us today, and I have appreciated our friendship over the years. Thank you. So have I. And I continue to look to you and the Milken Institute for great things because that's where a lot of our progress in health is going to come from the work you're funding and the work your institute is accomplishing. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.